Welcome to South Bank Centre Podcast. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in modern literature, then you're in the right place. In this series, you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping art and culture today. This podcast is from the Literature and Poetry Programme here at South Bank Centre. To see all our upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash literature. Good evening. Hello, my name's Robert Collins. I'm the producer at Intelligence Squared. For those of you who don't know us already, we're the world's leading forum for live debate. We and South Bank Centre are thrilled to be welcoming Terry Gilliam this evening. He's going to be speaking to Will Gompertz, author, journalist, BBC arts editor. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Will Gompertz. Good. Uh, good evening, everybody. Isn't it great to be in one of the most fabulous halls in the entire world, the Royal Festival Hall? Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah. We're going to have a lot of fun. This is really a, cele- a celebration. Uh, whatever Variety may say, Terry Gilliam is not dead. <laughs> I know. It's great. Although it, he has been trying bloody hard. We did a, a, an event uh, up at this place called the Soho House Farmhouse. Lavish hospitality, um, which uh, Terry just piled into, to be honest. And about four o'clock in the morning, he decided it was about time to go home, having drunk the entire Oxfordshire breweries out of, out of alcohol. They supply these push bikes to get to your chalet. And the security guard said, oh, I'm not sure. But uh, Terry said, no, don't, don't be so silly. I, I, I can ride a bike. I'm 74, for Christ's sake. He got his bike, and within two meters, he was flat on his back, having had a catastrophic crash. And he was lying on his back, looking up at the stars, just giggling into heaven. And the security guard came up to him and said, uh, I told you it was a bad idea. And he said, no, this is precisely why it was a good idea. <laughs> that is Terry Gilliam's mind. That's the mind we're going to be exploring tonight or dipping into, jumping into, even, as you can see uh, on his book. It's an extraordinary story. How did a Minnesotan, Minnesotan country boy turn out to be, and I don't think this is overstating it, actually, one of the most important visual artists of the 20th century. If you think of impact, the amount of people who've seen Terry's animations, graphics, cartoons around the world and been touched by them probably matches any other artist in the 20th century. Then, of course, he's a comic, he's an actor, he's a brilliant stage director. And then, of course, a fantastic film director made a series of films, all of which in their own way are visually rich, highly imaginative and fantastical. Thank you. <laughs> hey, hi, man. How are you doing? Okay. Terry, we're going to explore your life as a creative individual through the auspices of this, this memoir, autobiography, a visual treat as well as a literary treat. On page six, and I promise you I did get further. I really <laughs> did. So I got to that age where you got to take your glasses off to read it. You're talking about being on the farm and seeing animals die and stuff. And he writes in this, there's a living creature, there's a dead creature, and there's a full creature, slightly up, higher up, the food train. This is knowledge (laughs) (laughs) that has served me very well creatively. (laughs) But it's right, there's something about growing up in the countryside. Sunday, late morning, before lunch, you'd go and a chicken would die that day for lunch. And there was nothing more exciting as a kid to watch 
a living animal, have its head chopped off, and then headless, it would run around in the yard for a, a minute or so. I mean, it was like miraculous. Sort of an amazing thing. I think it's always stuck with me, that idea of the nearness of death and the amazingness of life without a head. <laughs> <laughs> You halfway there. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> was that time living in the countryside before you moved to LA? Was that a time when sort of Terry Gilliam, the creative, was fully formed with those those experiences? I don't know. It was more like Terry Gilliam, the playing around, having fun. You haven't changed kind of much. Guy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But, was, a, but the, the going to the church, getting involved yeah. in the Bible, loving the grim fairy tales, that all happened at quite an early stage, those inputs. It was interesting because we didn't have a television. We had radio. That was our communication with out, the outside world, in a sense. We lived in the country on a dirt road, swamp across the street, uh, some cornfields over there. What more did you want, really? It was wonderful. But the radio was what intrigued me because there was uh, Let's Pretend, which was kind of Grimm's fairy tales and fairy tales. There was the fat man about a terrible character who, boom, would lumber in. He was a detective. <laughs> there was uh, a Catholic quarterback. But this whole world of radio was wonderful because there were no images. Mm. So I think my whole visual sense came from having to invent the faces, the costumes, the locations, the sets. It's a very important way of developing the muscles of imagination. It's followed in a sense that when I make a film and I've got a huge idea, but the budget is that big, and how you make that in that becomes very creative because you've got to be really sharp to find your way around these limitations. And I kind of think, you know, limitations are kind of things that make bombs, grenades work really well. If you've got a bunch of gunpowder, you go bang, nothing. But you wrap it in hard metal and then you've got an explosion because it's about the limitations that has forced me to use my imagination as opposed to using my memory of other people who've done great things and I haven't stolen and copied from them. Without wishing to sort of push you down the road of grumpy old man, do you think sort of kids nowadays are blighted by health and safety and being fed entertainment and information and all the rest of it the whole time? They don't have the opportunities yeah. to discover their imagination in the way that you did. Yeah, and I think grumpy old men are blighted by that as well. <laughs> I want to be able to take my own life in my own hands. <laughs> but I don't know. There's so much available now. I think maybe that's the problem. There is just infinite amount of things out there. Right. YouTube, whatever. You can play, you can do all this. And it's very hard to focus. I think there's an advantage of having less. Let's go back to the BBC and Python. There was the BBC One, BBC One Two, and ITV. Right. The choice was three if you, went, you were watching television. And you had a choice of three. Now... Now we have a choice of, of a thousand. So where do we focus it all? Community, where is it now? We're so atomized because of everything being there and we all have millions and millions of choices, which I just want to know, I want a good cappuccino. I don't want cappuccino with mocha and, 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 and walnut flavoring and some sesame seeds on top, just served at that temperature. I think that's it. So if you're young and you're inundated also because Harry, uh, our son, when he was 
12, we live at Highgate. It's a rather decent place to live. Shops <laughs> about 100 meters down the road. And he was actually nervous to go out because he was going to be raped, mugged, you know, all sorts of things were going to happen. I said, it's not true, Harry. If you're really, really unlucky in life, maybe one thing will happen to you in the course of your entire life. And yet the 24 hours news pouring this in, I think it's successful. It creates fear in everybody. And, and every government I know loves a terrified populace. <laughs> How did moving to L.A. affect you? L.A. was odd because we left Minnesota and we got in the car, my parents, three children, and my grandmother towing a trailer across America, heading west. And I, at that point, I thought California was going to be cowboys and Indians. It was uh, an open space. It was free from snow and mosquitoes and all the things that made life in Minnesota difficult. And we got there, and of course, it wasn't anything like that because we moved into a house in Panorama City, which is in the heart of the San Fernando Valley. There is no panorama. Uh, <laughs> and it had just been built by Henry Kaiser of Kaiser Aluminium. For those of you who've seen Chinatown with Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson drives out into the valley. It's all oak, I mean, uh, orange groves. It's just beautiful. And that's what it was up until the year we moved there. And the year before, they chopped it all down and built identical houses everywhere. That was not the California I saw in the movies. But the movies were made around us. There's a place called Stony Point that was some from our house, 20 minutes drive. And a lot of the old TV westerns were shot there. So you could actually go and climb around and fall and do all the things you do in, in westerns, which was really exciting. Did, did you have a sense then that that's the world in which you wanted to work, live, exist? I didn't really think seriously about movies until I was in, well, I must have been about 14 or 15 at the time. And on a Saturday, Saturday matinees, all the parents would dump their children there. And so there we were, and Kubrick's Paths of Glory came up. It was like the first time I was aware films had things to say other than just entertaining. And I was transfixed, and I think that was the moment that, boom, these things are powerful, they say things, and I ought to start taking them more seriously than just entertainment. At what point did Mad Magazine enter your life? Well, it's Mad Comics before Mad Magazine. Mad yeah. Comics was started in the, in the 50s. Harvey Kurtzman was the editor. The best cartoonists of America were writing there. It was ironic, it did pastiches of comics. And it turned you know, sort of rather bland Sunday uh, morning uh, comic strips into real socio-political statements, and they were brilliantly funny. It really was, in a sense, the Bible for my generation of cartoonists. We uh -huh. all grew up with it because there was nothing like it. But what I did do is copy. I learned to draw cartoons, trying to draw like Jack Davis or Wally Wood, any of them. Willie Elder was one of my favorites because he, Harvey Kurtzman would write these stories and Willie is the guy that would add 10 million jokes to every cartoon frame, which I think is where I learned to fill the background of my films up with all sorts of things, which maybe people won't even see until the second or third or fourth viewing. That's really arrogance, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's like, he'll watch it that many times. <laughs> but, yeah. Wait but, till you see this for the 25th time. I'll yeah. come out. It was a theory. It was a yeah. theory. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all of that was there. So 
it took until college yeah. where a connection began to form. A group of us took over the college literary magazine, a really fine publication, and we turned it into a cheap, shoddy comic <laughs> magazine. And the readership shot up. And we just started playing with it. We were much inspired by it, stealing things, stealing formats, the ways of doing things. That was the leap that basically when I graduated with no plan, I had been sending those magazines to Harvey in New York. And he had written a nice letter back saying, you're doing some interesting work. Terrific. I got to go to college because I was smart in high school. I was beyond wonderful. I was student body president, head cheerleader. I was king of the senior problem. I was valedictory. There was nothing I could not do. Anyway, or so I believed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I got a scholarship to Occidental College. It's the only way I could go to the, the school. It was a very fine college, and it was costly. And I got there because I got a scholarship. And actually, it wasn't just purely on my academic credentials. It was also a Presbyterian scholarship because my work in the, the local church group. So God was very much involved in my advancement. Uh, or at least his representatives via John Knox and others. <laughs> it's like, it's a, and so I go to college and it's smart because the first time I was really around rich kids and because the school was expensive. So either you had to be very smart or have very rich parents to go there. And that really changed so much because at that point, we're talking 1958 now, and that was when practical jokes were still popular. And if you're a rich kid, you can do really expensive practical jokes <laughs> um, with very little, and, and that sense of privilege that rich kids have. I mean, we would do, or they would do, and I would learn to do them, jokes like, for example, okay, um, <laughs> you take a room in the dorm and you fill it up with newspaper, you crunch up the papers a lot. You need a lot of friends to do this. And you fill it up from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, door to window. And it's, you can't move, it's just full of paper. But then there's another thing you do. You take the bed of this person whose room it is, who is away for the weekend, uh, and you hang it out the window. And you have a rope holding that, that, that bed and you then run it through the window straight through to the door and you then tie it to the door handle. Now, you pull the door too, but there's one more trick. You've got to pull the pins out of the hinges. So the only thing ho holding the door in position is the lock. That's it. So the guy, after a nice weekend, comes back, pissed out of his mind, puts the keys in the door and wham! <laughs> And that's what we do. We would do things like that. I, I of course, didn't, um, but the rich kids did. I mean, at one point, they actually took an old Model T Ford and re took it apart, reassembled it, put it in the room, and had the engine running when the guy came back. <laughs> so in that kind of atmosphere, I was inspired, I guess. <laughs> special effects. Special effects. But it's, it, what I loved about that kind of practical joke, it was more work preparing and doing it than right. the ultimate effect. The setup was bigger the than the payoff. The setup was everything. Yeah. And I thought, that's great. And I don't care how destructive the joke was, if the setup was much more work than the end result. That was, and it really made me think very differently about things. But with the humor magazine, we were doing that. We just did one year, the freshman would arrive. 
And that was a time in colleges when freshmen would be hazed. They would have to go through all sorts of indoctrinations, you know, various things to get into the select world of this college. Well, we started this series up in a Greek theater, which was just above the main part of the campus. You know, these torch-lit assemblies. Um, Nuremberg was small time compared to what we were doing here. And it's like, and the freshmen would be paraded in. It was all done very ritualistic. And then we would, that evening, uh, tell them the traditions of the college and imbue them with all the knowledge that they would need to survive. This was all invented the night before. Um, and, but what was extraordinary about it, the freshmen believed it all that year. But what was interesting, that's in, in the same period of time, the seniors who had been there for four years had accepted that as a truth. And I thought, the big lie does work. It really does. But we were doing it for fun. We weren't doing it to try to wipe well, out half of humanity or anything. I'm delighted there were no pigs involved anyway. <laughs> You start sending your cartoons in to help, and eventually you get a gig there. Yeah. And then John Cleese comes over to New York as part of a reinvention of the Footlights, yeah. Cambridge Footlights. You see him and invite him to come in and do an animation with you. It's called Fumetti, Fumetti, which is like, it's basically like doing a cartoon, except it's live action. It's photographs. People speak with balloons. That's what the, the Fumetti is, a puff of smoke. It was kind of how I learned to make movies, because you need actors, costumes, sets, locations, all that. So yeah. I was on the lookout, it was my job of assistant editor, looking for cheap actors. And there was Cambridge Footlights. And of course, John, as always, stands out from the crowd. And I asked him if he would be in this fumetti that my roommate at the time had written. And, and that was the beginning of this relationship. You come over to Britain. You don't want to be in the war. You come over to Britain, you want to get out, don't have to enter Vietnam. You hook up with Cleese. He points you in the direction of another bunch of people doing something for the BBC. Wasn't it Thames TV? Was it Thames? I think it was Thames. It was Mike Palin, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, David Jason as well. Yeah. We're doing uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set. They were doing children's television and getting away with murder. It was wonderful. And, and I was still at that point, still... In magazine work, I was art director of a thing called The Londoner. I was doing cartoons to make a living. And I'd said, John, I want to get out of this. And he introduced me. Humphrey Barclay was producing it, who went on yep. to produce uh, uh, We Have Ways of Making You Laugh and many, many things. And Humphrey was an amateur cartoonist, and I brought all my stuff there. And he, I had some written sketches and then the cartoons. And he really liked the cartoons. And I think that's why he bought one of the written sketches and forced those other people Mike, Terry, and Eric, who were the writers and performers. And that was the beginning of the connection. It was one of those things. I arrived, and I, at that point, was wearing a big, long, shaggy sheepskin coat that I'd painted Big Sun on. I was very <laughs> exotic-looking, apparently. And Eric has always been the one who connects us with the glamorous world, the world outside of Python. Mike and Terry, of course, were huddled in the back in a little, with their little nasty little rodental teeth. <laughs> They hated me. <laughs> They're very territorial. Uh, and that was my sort of beginning of the whole thing. The funny thing about it is that Mike, Terry, and I are the closest in the group. It, it started with difficulty. And, and that led to another show that Humphrey Barclay produced that Frank Muir was doing right. called We Have Ways of Making You Laugh. And they brought me on as um, the resident cartoonist. And I would sit there and draw 
sketches of the, the guests before they came out. One week, Dick Vosper, who uh, was one of the writers and performers on the show, he had collected for several months Jimmy Young's pun-filled links in the songs uh, when he was a DJ uh, on, on the radio. And they were terrible puns. <laughs> but Dick had got three months of this stuff, and they didn't know what to do with it. And I said, well, let me make an animated film. And, and they foolishly thought I knew how to do animated films. I guess this American you know, bravado uh, just floored them. And I had two weeks. And the only way I could do it was cutting out things. I cut out pictures of Jimmy Young, put his foot in his mouth, did all sorts of silliness. And nobody had seen that kind of cut-out animation in England. I mean, there were people in America, Stan Vanderbeek and other people who had been doing that kind of work, but it hadn't crossed the water. Right. And suddenly on television, overnight, I was an animator because they were so surprised. Marty Feldman then got me to do some on his show. And then when we went back for the next series of did not adjust your set. I did more longer animated pieces, and so then I was really part of that group, which teamed up with John and Graham and became... And then you became Monty Python. Oh, then we became Monty That's Python, and afterwards yeah. that was it, how it worked. For me, it was like coming to this country and discovering the audience that I couldn't find in America. Uh. The English got what I was doing. But it was different, because their, theirs was verbal, they were great performers, and I was this creature that made these things that moved and banged and feet came down. That's why no pythons have been invited tonight, because if they're present, my vocabulary shrinks to eat nothing. <laughs> I, I'm intimidated even to try to put words together. There's something about them that's still they intimidate a power. You. It's, it's very weird because they are so good verbally, so quick and verbally, and I bang around the place. I eventually get to the point. The way it worked, we would all gather. Everybody would in their different groupings, or Eric had his own, or me and my own, would prepare a lot of stuff. They would put them all together and read it. The reading out was always a political moment because is this going to get through or is that going to... So it was, which, do we read this before that one? It was, uh, you could feel... Yeah. Particularly John was very good at trying to strategize when to put his sketch forward. <laughs> uh, and everybody would laugh or not laugh, and then it would go in the good pile, the mid pile, or the bad pile. But I was the one who just laughed innocently because I didn't have anything to, I didn't have a political stance on it. It was funny, I laughed, and I laughed loudly. So I think that that became my, part of my job in all of that because they didn't understand what I did. You like the canary down the mine. There's a bit of that. There was oh, a he bit laughed. Of that. That's in. Yeah. yeah. Gilliam found it funny. Well, then anybody will find it funny. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be educated to find it funny. We'll put that in. Did you have any inkling at the time what you were doing was yeah. important? That was the great thing about what we were allowed to do. It was about six people entertaining themselves, making ourselves laugh. We never talked about the audience. The great thing about it, the shows are very uneven. And we were given the freedom at the BBC at that point. Do something, and if it works, you know, maybe we'll do some more. The Jaws the BBC dropped because they had no idea what this stuff was. They sold it as a circus. Old ladies arrived, not like the ones we always use in there, but they were real <laughs> old ladies. It just caught on, and it caught on quite quickly. I think, I think the fourth show, they pulled it off it for did. the Horse of the Year show. Yeah, that was great because clearly that was much more important and there was still <laughs> some doubt of whether Python could maintain another couple of shows. But the great thing was 
right in the middle of the Horse of the Year show, and they're, they're doing some dressage, and the music they're playing is, ah, yum, da 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 So we, we got even in there. It was really quite funny. So there was clearly one of these gods up there was looking after us. Well, then one of those gods came along and specifically looked after you because you got the gig to direct Holy Grail. Well, it wasn't just me. I mean, Terry Jones and I, we just said, and the others foolishly agreed to let anybody named Terry direct. <laughs> because I just think they thought it was a dog's body job, which it is. Of course, during the filming, when things went wrong, as they always do in film, there was certain, a certain backlash among some members of the group who said, oh, these guys, Jones and Gilliam, are completely buggering up the whole thing. <laughs> the experience is wonderful because there was a wonderful naivete about us. We didn't know better. Do you know what the thing... It's interesting to know what... what what your state of mind was then and how you felt about yourself. And so Python was behind you. That had already become legendary. And here you are, you've done Jabberwocky, then you do Time Bandits, and it's huge. You're A-list. You can do anything. What's going on in your head? Now I can do what they don't want me to do. <laughs> Perverseness is very important in life. If everybody's walking that way, walk this way. It's more interesting. You might find something new. A lot of it, I do it just perverse reasons. It's not the smartest thing to do. It's the perverse thing to do. And suddenly I was an A-list director right. after, after Time Bandits. And of course, I was being offered these big Hollywood movies. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do Brazil. I teamed up with Arnon Melchon, who is an arms dealer and Israeli spy, but very charming. And it's... Um, <laughs> and, and we went to Cannes, and we were like two pirates running around the place, giggling and behaving not the way film series producers and directors are supposed to behave. And we managed to somehow confuse two major studios, 20th Century Fox and Universal, their head men, to fight to do the film. So we ended up with two studios doing the film, not just one. <laughs> and we did it, and then the fun really started. We made you Brazil. Re <laughs> you regretted that, did you? Must have done. Not for one moment. We made Brazil. 20th Century Fox had it for the world. It came out in Europe, and it got really interesting reviews. It was good. And then Universal... In America. ...put the big foot down on Why? it. Why? I think what's weird is Sid Scheinberg, who was my nemesis at that point, head of Universal, I think he really admired the film on so many levels, but yet it had this downer ending. You know, it wasn't a happy ending. And it had some confusing things in there. If we could just get rid of those. He wanted me to make a more commercial film by changing the ending and doing other things. And I said, no, come on, Sid. Ah, but more people will go to see it. But it won't be the film I or we made. He couldn't understand that. It was actually probably one of the most enjoyable six months of my life. The film was dead. It was not going to be released. They put an embargo on me, even showing it anywhere in America, even to friends. But a variety of things happened, and one of them, I'd been to USC film school, and it was like this, except rather than you, it was all film students out there. And we had been able to wangle me bringing a few audiovisual helps along, and I just brought the whole film along. Um, basically, no, actually, that's not true. Not the I titles. Cut, I, I cut three minutes off the credits at the end. Yeah. That's being creative, right? 
being creative. Yeah. And what was so funny, my lawyer was on the phone to Universal's lawyer because the problem with USC Film School is it's all financed by the studios. Uh-huh. It produces the directors of the future for the machine of Hollywood. And the head of production there, the one who's in charge of the projectors and all, refused to do it. He refused to turn he the he projector. funding. Yeah, he was not going to deal with that. He was not going to betray his financiers. So my lawyer is talking to the lawyer at Universal whose name, and this is wonderful because it's Brazil. <laughs> we have Mr. Kurtzman. We have Mr. Yeah, we have Mr. Helpman. And the lawyer's name was Mr. Middleman. <laughs> you, you, I mean, this is the point. You cannot make write up, this stuff. Yeah, nobody yeah. believed it. His name is Mr. Middleman. <laughs> and all we were doing is Mr. Middleman finally agreed <laughs> that they would show my film clip. He didn't know how long it was. And yet the dean hid himself, the dean of students hid himself in his office, kept the door shut, and wouldn't take the phone call. My lawyer said, oh, Mr. Middleman's trying to call the dean. The dean wouldn't take the call. And I'm sitting there talking to the students, and I said, and, and, and most of them got up and started banging on the dean's door, saying, take the call, take the call, take the call. It was wonderful. <laughs> and as a result of that, there were some people there from the Los Angeles film critics. They... Uh, surreptitiously, serendipitously, illegally <laughs> agreed to show the, the film that I was carrying around at private viewings in their homes around L.A. And now, a month later, uh, heads of Universal are in New York for the opening of Out of Africa, Meryl Streep, Robert Redford, everybody's there. It's the big do of the year. It's their film, the one that everything is going to make them big money that year. And they get an announcement in the middle of the ceremony that the L.A. critics had voted Best Picture Brazil, Best Director, this guy, Best Screenplay, Tom uh, Stoppard, Terry Gilliam, and Charles McCune. And it was, like, wonderful. <laughs> there was no way they could deal with it. This is impossible. The L.A. critics had found in their bylaws that the film didn't actually have have to be released into cinema as long as it was made and out there available and somehow and and they had done that it was it was wonderful so they put it into cinemas really quickly in new york and a couple of other big cities now the problem was they didn't even have a poster and it made real money in the big cities universal now think they've got a hit on their hands and they open it up in all sorts of non non places little places around america and Nobody had heard about the story because they didn't live in New York or L.A. or Boston or Chicago. And so nobody went. They didn't want to see a documentary about the South American country. Or <laughs> who cared? And, and so it was, it was a flop. <laughs> but the point is, it was out there. And once a film is out there, it will it's find an audience somewhere, somehow yeah. down the line. And it has, and it's the one that unfortunately will be engraved on my tombstone, I'm afraid. <laughs> 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 it, it, it tells us something about you as well, Terry. I mean, you, you don't bend easy. So, so this has clearly become personal. It was a perfect David versus Goliath situation. And being reasonably well-known because of the success of Time Bandits and Python. So there was all the fans out there that wanted to know what this thing was. People were so proud of being the people that showed Brazil. Okay, guys, so what we're going to do is it, we're going to hand Terry over to you. Uh, hi there, Terry. Hey. What's the film that, you, uh, that someone else has made that you most wish you'd made yourself? Troy. Okay. I turned that down. I don't miss that. Um, 
It was, uh, you, you, t- you, turned, you, <laughs> you turned down Forrest Gump, didn't you? I turned down Forrest Gump, which I thought, I thought it was a complete rip-off of Philip K. Dick, and he wasn't credited anywhere in it, so I took a stance on that one. But I thought that film was done beautifully. Mr. and Mrs. Um, Smith, I didn't do that one. I've got a whole career <laughs> of very successful films that I didn't make. <laughs> do you regret not getting the Harry Potter gig? Not really. In the end, I think I've got so many friends who worked on it, and it was very much like a factory job at time. It's just big. I didn't regret that. I just know I would have done a much, much better first Harry Potter film than Chris Columbus did. I don't want to name names, but um, <laughs> yeah. the, the great Harry Potter film to me is the one that Alfonso Cuaron did. I thought Third he one, got it. I got, he got the darkness. He got the magic. He got it. Brilliant. Hi, I was just wondering, are there any more, more recent directors or actors whom you really respect and would have liked to collaborate with? Let's start with Michael Fassbender. Yes. I've seen Steve Jobs. He's extraordinary. The real Steve Jobs has vanished from my visual memory. It's Michael Fassbender. There's so many great actors out there. But he at the moment, I think, and I think Tom Hardy is extraordinary. I think there's some really good... I mean, Britain right now has got really good connection. We've got those two guys. We've got Eddie Redmayne. We've got Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, it's a pretty good crowd. And it's a nice, varied group of people. So there's all sorts of possibilities here. I don't know. I don't spend much time doing, thinking like that. I just think about whatever project I'm working on, who's right for the part. I want to say also that it's great that we're all here. And if the world's going to be 10 minutes, best place to be. Um, <laughs> and I just put my full count to my question. It's, it's wonderful throughout your films and throughout your career seeing that you are so childlike and imaginative. But what intrigues me also is your sense of joie de vivre in that, you know, the time and time again you've had the most incredible upsets and sometimes like, sometimes like imagine how on earth does you survive this one? But you've done it time and time again. I wonder, is this joie de vivre a sort of secret you carry or is it something that you can say that you, how you maintain it? I'm just curious. It's a lie I perform in public. <laughs> oh, I think... What I think Terry is saying is he could be a difficult bastard. You live life, right? Life is really difficult. I've been very lucky. That's that's what it's really about. I am lucky. I'm I'm very privileged. Other people have very, very difficult life. I don't know how I've sort of danced through this thing, but there it is. So I kind of spend my life thinking of all the disasters about to befall. I kind of prepare myself. I mean, as a child, I thought about my death. I remember years ago when Maggie and I started having children. It was like Maggie, my wife, suddenly was first aware of her mortality. And I said, I thought about my death every day. And Variety has obviously been doing it as well. <laughs> it's, it's, I, there's something about it by accepting death is there. As long as I'm the first one to die, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't want to be, have to see a lot of my loved ones die before me. So everything else, and you fall off a bike, and you didn't hit your head on the side of the pavement and split it open. Brilliant! Another great day. <laughs> I suppose my question is, like, you've kind of done every single element of the, of the film process in terms of kind of... I don't know, animating, visualising, um, producing, directing, and even just, just from like, the physical battles that you have to go through to get your films produced, it's incredible. But I suppose, what do you define yourself as in this world where everything needs a definition? 
I don't know. A Renaissance man without the Medici's to finance my work. <laughs> <laughs> But that's interesting. I mean, yeah. you are, you, you know, you're an artist, you're a comic, yeah. actor, so, opera director, film director. What do you see yourself as? What's on your passport? British citizen. Yeah. <laughs> that's on my passport. I don't. I, I just put director down. As well. I don't know. I don't want to define myself because I'm not even sure who I am still. After all these years, I find every time I look in, I walk down the street and look in a plate glass window and there's this fat guy with bad posture lumping around and he's 900 years old and that's me. <laughs> and I don't want to define myself as that guy, so I'm not sure who I am. <laughs> I think we'll be sitting here in a year's time, Terry, and we'll be talking about Terry Gilliam, graphic novelist. <laughs> Please give Terry Gilliam a warm round of applause. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to keep up with the latest hot topics and big thinkers. For more information on what's going on at our venues, visit southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can find all our podcast channels if you search for Southbank Centre on iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. <laughs>